Hi, and thanks for listening. This week on The Limitless Pregnancy, we're speaking with Keola Rains, wellness, nutrition, and lifestyle coach. Keola shares with us her journey into sobriety and a different perspective on mommy wine culture. It's a conversation about awareness, self-soothing, and self-care from a different perspective than we're used to seeing in the mainstream. I was surprised at some of the things that this episode brought up for me, and I'm really happy to be able to bring this conversation and this topic to you today. I hope you enjoy. Remind me where you are in the world. You're in California? I'm in Los Angeles, California. Sunny California. Sunny and beautiful. I hear, though, that people can get tired of the constant sunny weather. Is that real? Because (laughs) up here in the Pacific Northwest where it rains so much of the year, I can't imagine getting tired of sunshine. Yeah, I don't know. They're not California natives. If you get tired of the sunshine, it's a transplant who came from another (laughs) state or something. And they're like, oh, my gosh, it's 85 degrees again. We're going to have to go to the beach again. No. Yeah, that's I've never heard of that. So. (laughs) Yeah, see, that's like my dream. We my husband and I used to live in Indonesia and it is not unlike LA, just in the sense that like it's nearly always sunny and nearly always warm. Granted, we had monsoon season, which is not something that we have in the States. And that was crazy, but it was just always warm and it always felt so good. I loved it so much, but my husband is from the Northeast and he was like, I'm ready for a snowstorm. I want to be, you know, up to my eyeballs in ice. And I'm like, he and I are so opposite that way where I'm like, just give me sun. I just want to bask in the vitamin D and feel heat on my skin. (laughs) Yeah, that is me. I tell people I was a lizard in my past life. I'm sure that I was a lizard because I could lay and just bake and bake and bake. I've even gotten into my car, you know, when it was sitting for a little while in a parking lot or something and just sat there in the heat. And my fiance is like, you are so weird. Like, what is wrong with you? I was like, I don't know. I just, I like to bake. (laughs) Yeah. It's like a sauna. It's like a sauna that you just, it's convenient. You just get into your car and then you're sitting in a sauna. It's like you're multitasking. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So as we're obviously having a a conversation about your experience with being a sober parent, I guess I just want to start from the beginning. Were you, have you, has sobriety always been a part of your lifestyle? Did you adapt it at a certain point? I guess we'll start there and then I'll ask more questions. Yeah. So, um, it's been a part of my life, uh, through my dad, I guess you could say. So my first experience, even understanding what the word sober and sobriety meant came from learning about my dad recovering from a drug addiction. And so as a kid, probably eight, somewhere between eight and 10 years old was my first experience understanding the word, what it means to be sober. Why would someone be trying to be sober, living the sober lifestyle? And then for myself personally, I had my first understanding of why I needed to make this decision for myself um, back in 2015. But I would say I knew that my relationship with alcohol was not a positive one as early as 2008 or so. I had my first drink when I was 15 years old, you know, just kind of assumed that that was just part of like a rite of passage eight you know you you go drink some boons farm with your friends yes <laughs> and you know you get access to whatever you can get access to and you know just went on from there to college and things but when it comes to just sobriety as a lifestyle in the last two and a half years is when it's become something that I'm very passionate about that I'm you know speak openly about I, um, you know, am not anonymous, so I've kind of broken the rules and rebelled against traditional recovery. Um, and there's a whole movement actually 
you know, thanks to millennials who are very, very adamant about being healthy and well and finding solutions to things. You know, there's pros and cons about millennials. One of the pros is that they've created this sober curious movement, which is opening up the idea and the concept of choosing sobriety without having, you know, some rock bottom or, you know, some major life-changing event. I am not a millennial, so I had to hit rock bottom, girl. I had to have the whole wild and crazy experience to choose sobriety. But I think it's absolutely amazing that this younger generation is opening up the the concept um, and access to sobriety without having to have some huge major challenge or issue. And it's it's pretty amazing to see how it's grown, especially on social media, to something that, you know, sober curiosity is, it's like a trend. And so not drinking is becoming a trend, which for the person in recovery, it's like, oh, this is awesome. Yeah. Now, if I say I'm not drinking, people just say, oh, cool. Do you want one of these other options that I have here? Where 10 years ago, you know, if I said, oh, I'm not drinking, it's like, why? What's wrong yeah. with you? Del? Yep. What happened? And, you know, and for some people, yeah, something crazy did happen. Something wild did happen. Um, but for a lot of people, they've just realized, you know what? Like, I'm literally just drinking because everyone else is drinking. I don't even like I don't even like this. I don't like how I feel. And so it's pretty awesome to see how it's evolved. Um, but for me, yeah, since since childhood, I, I've uh, been aware of the word and the term and what recovery was. And from my personal experience in the last couple of years, it's just been something that's become my lifestyle. Man, I think you touched on so many good points. I don't even know where to start first. But <laughs> I I first of all, I love the idea that you're not doing it anonymously. I I think that there's stigma for everything, right? If you're sober, there's a stigma for it. If you're drunk, there's a stigma yeah. for it. It's like no matter what yeah. you do, you're going to be stigmatized and judged, which is, I guess, kind of life at this point anyway, especially now that we have the internet and social media. But the idea that you are not staying anonymous in your journey and that you're talking candidly about it and sharing your experience with others, I feel like is so powerful because there are so many things that we do, like you said, as, as a society or as part of our rite of passage or however we look at it, we just do it because it's always been done and we don't think about it. We don't think about why yeah. we're doing it. We don't think about the long-term effects or we don't care about the long-term effects because it's already been built into society. So, oh, well, whatever, you know, there's so many different elements to how we look at sobriety. And usually if someone says they're sober, there's like a, the response is like, oh, it's not patronizing necessarily, but it's like, yeah. you get a little head pat and you get like, for you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and you get like an, oh, okay. So you must have a story. And a lot of people do. And some people <laughs> don't, you know, my husband, I don't, he's not, I wouldn't call him sober. He has a glass of wine every now and then he has you know, he loves his European hard liquors. Like the more it tastes like lighter fluid, the more he likes it, which is crazy to me. <laughs> but he's also never been drunk. He is the kind of person that will sit with one glass all night long and probably not even finish it. Right. And he doesn't like, you know, he knows if he gets to, like if he completes a full drink and maybe gets to the potential of having a second one, he doesn't like that threshold. He doesn't like the way it starts to make him feel. So he's just, he has no idea what it's like to be drunk. He's never experienced it. He's a responsible and drinker. He's the definition yeah. <laughs> of a responsible exactly. drinker. They do exist. They do exist. But it's funny because I remember when I learned that about him, you know, he and I met in New York and New York, like LA is, has a huge party scene and it's such a deeply ingrained part of your culture. What do you do with your colleagues? What do you do with your friends? What do you do with your peps group? What do you do with everything? Like every, every 
piece of your social construct involves drinking. What do you do at brunch? What do you do at dinner? What do you do at every, like any time of the day, right? And so I remember the first date we went on, we shared a glass of wine. And then the second date, I was like, do you like not drink? I just remember being so confused (laughs) because dates that I went on in New York, people were like ordering a bottle of wine right off the bat, right? It was like, we sit down, we order a bottle of wine, then we look at the menu. And so I just remember being like, wait a minute, what's wrong with you? I totally had that that stigmatic perception as well, yeah. where I was like, okay, like, what's your story? What's your, what's your deal with alcohol? And he doesn't have a deal with alcohol. He just doesn't drink it, yeah. which is, it sounds like similar to you, obviously different, different backgrounds and different reasoning, but it is something that I think there's starting to have more awareness around, like you said, and we're just starting to have more conversations about like what it means. Why do we drink? Why is it such a huge part of our social construct? And then even beyond that, for moms, it's a socially accepted part of our parenthood, right? Mm -hmm. Like you had a rough night with the baby, have a glass of wine. You had a rough day with teething, have a glass of wine. That's kind of like the solution. And it's even like joked about and it's memes and it's like a huge part of mom culture, right? Right. The moms drink. Yeah. I would love to hear your thoughts on that or like how that fits in for you. Did you become sober before you became a mom? Was it after? Yeah. So it's really wild. (laughs) I was one of those people that was like, I can't have kids because how am I going to party and be this party girl. And I don't, you know, I grew up with a big family. I have um, four siblings. I'm the second oldest. So I was sure that I was not having kids. It was definitely like, like no way, you know, and then I fell in love, met the most amazing person ever. And I met him. um, Actually, I met him three months before I got sober, actually. So that was its own thing, right? Navigating dating. I had no idea what I was going to, I didn't have a plan. All I was focused on was I'm not going to drink anymore. And, um, I chose to, you know, I am when I had that story, I had the wild and crazy story, had a DUI, had toxic relationships, just knew that alcohol was not good for me in my life anymore. And so when I made that decision, I had met him October, 2018, and I reached out to start a recovery program, January, 2019. And he just didn't really like question it at all. You know, he, he saw me drink a couple of times when we first met, um, on a couple of dates. And then, so January rolls around and I was like, Hey, like I- I'm quitting drinking. And not only am I quitting drinking, I'm actually going into a, you know, 12 step recovery. I'm literally doing the whole thing. And he just, he was like, really, I would have never known. Like you see, you know, you own a fitness studio, you have a master's degree, you are functioning. You're like, everything seems totally quote unquote normal about you. So why do you need this help? And I said, well, do you want to, you have some time for me to tell you that all the stories or do you just want to kind of trust that I know what I'm doing? So he's like, all right, I'll, I'll trust you. Obviously it's brand new dating. He's not going to, you know, ruffle too many feathers. And I had a year, um, in recovery before I got pregnant and I, I attribute my pregnancy to my body being so healthy, my mind being so healthy, my life being so healthy, just everything being aligned and being in this very healthy, happy relationship that the universe, God, whatever you want to call it was like, you know what? She's ready. So let's just make this happen. And, you know, we, we just decided like, Hey, like, I really love you. This is, this is it. Like, let's do this. And, um, I didn't really think about what that meant as far as parenthood. I just didn't, it didn't really like cross my mind. Like, Oh, this means that I will be doing all of these 
you know, parenting challenges without drinking. You know, I just knew my life wasn't going to have drinking. And then came the pandemic. So I was pregnant during the pandemic and people were just (laughs) drinking their faces off. It was just a crazy, it was crazy. Alcohol consumption just skyrocketed and, you know, all over the world. But in the U.S., we really have a, a challenge with it. So I didn't plan to go into parenthood, you know, sober. I just, it just kind of happened at the same time. And now though, seven months later, I can see how easy it could be to fall into using alcohol as, you know, as your coping mechanism, as your social, you know, to keep you social. I can see it as a thing to fall back on and how it could be a downward spiral if you're not like your husband, a responsible drinker. So I now have, I I just have so much respect for people who do make the decision without having some life-changing event, you know? So there's people that are in recovery from alcohol abuse. um, And then there's folks who are just choosing to be sober. So I am like, hats off. If you are just choosing this because you're choosing it, then that is absolutely amazing. You know, it's, you just make the decision because of course I'm tired. I also, you know, just, you know, for women, we have those emotions, the hormones, the up and down of emotions where at the end of the day, you know, I'm just like, oh my God, like, what was I thinking? <laughs> like, wow, what was I thinking? Like, why did, you know, like, this is crazy, of course. And then you, as a mom, I don't know, this could, I could just be me, but you go through the guilt feelings like, oh, why did, I shouldn't have thought that. Like, why did I even think you know, what was I thinking? You know? So it's like, oh, then I feel guilty because I'm like, of course I love my son, but you know, sometimes the day is just crazy. And yes, would it be easier probably for the average person to just go pour a glass of wine and kind of like melt away? Sure. Be a lot easier for someone like myself though. It's just that it could be the beginning of a whole big issue and challenge. And so when it comes to being able to just get through the days the, you know, potty training, the just sleepless nights, the teething, the, oh my gosh, you're crawling now. So we literally have to change everything about our entire house because you can, you can get to it now. Um, I I can see how having a, whatever, a glass of wine or a drink or whatever would be a solution. And now I, I just have to navigate without it. I don't really have a choice. There's no, there's no other option for me and my encouragement for especially women, because we are targeted. You don't hear about the daddy beer culture. Like there's no such thing as daddy beer culture. It just doesn't exist. Are, you know, ads for, um, you know, beer and things like that targeted towards men? Sure. But it's just not a, a term or, you know, just, it's not a thing that exists for men to be targeted to drink as a solution for parenting, right? which could be a whole nother conversation in itself that dads just don't get the respect they deserve as dads. We make dads seem like they're like, Oh yeah, you're just the extra other parent. Like, thanks for your sperm donation, but I got this. And for me, at least that's not the case. My fiance is like extremely hands-on. I call him dad of the year, like at least once a week, but you know, they, they just don't get targeted the way we do. And it's unfortunate because it makes it seem like women are just like, you can't function without that wine. And it, people don't know that we as women, if you are a responsible drinker, right? So let's just even talk about that. What is responsible drinking? If you are a responsible drinker as a woman, that means one, just one, literally one cocktail, one and a half to two ounces of alcohol 
one glass of wine, four to six ounces, one beer, eight to 12 ounces, just one. It's only one. That's what's considered responsible for women. Mommy wine culture is not telling you to have one glass of wine. Mommy wine culture is telling you to put wine in your coffee mug, you know, hide in your closet. There was a big campaign that Tropicana had called Take a Moment. Yeah. They're giving out these little fridges. You could go hide in your closet and drink while your kids are there. You know, it's just, it's, it's crazy. So yeah, that was my long winded. No, I didn't plan. I didn't plan on, um, being a sober parent. It just kind of all happened. And now that I'm in it, I can see how it could be such a challenge to avoid avoid drinking. I completely, yeah, I completely forgot about the moment campaign. But as soon as you brought that up, I remember <laughs> making terrible jokes with my husband about it because it was really like, I guess I understand what they were trying to do. They were trying to target a market that already has a trending market, right? But just like the, the right. actual psychology behind the idea that like, you need to hide from your kids and go to your secret fridge in your closet to have a cocktail and hide from your kids. And like the implications of what that means as far as like, yeah. Well, the crazy thing is the, the sober community, I can proudly say that the sober community went crazy on Tropicana and 48 hours later, the entire campaign was canceled and over and done. Everything about it was deleted off Instagram. It ran no longer. Really? From mostly women. Um, there's Sober Moms Club, Sober Moms Gang, Sober Mom Crew, you know, Sober Women This, Sober Black Girls, Sober Everything. We were going ham. Comments, DMs, emails, everything, you know, every blog, everything we could do because it's for us, it's life or death. You know, it's like you... That is how some people started their substance abuse with alcohol was as a mom. There's lots of women who, who, you know, casually drank. And then when they became moms, it was at like, oh, just one in the, you know, I'm just going to, oh, he's asleep. He's taking a nap. I just need something. And not everyone has the the makeup to be able to stop at one. Yeah. Um. So it was very, it was very triggering for a lot of people. And I, for me, that was like a moment of like, wow, like we really are people are hearing us like we matter like our voices matter this is like i said it's a life or death situation alcohol is the third leading cause of death worldwide worldwide it's tobacco heart disease and alcohol so that's pretty major it's pretty freaking major that the third leading cause of death is probably in all, almost every house even i mean my my fiance drinks every now and then so we we have a little bar here but it's the third leading cause of death. Like, that's crazy. Yeah. It's absolutely that's crazy. Wild. And so we just had to be, you know, loud and proud and out. And that wouldn't have happened, obviously, a decade ago. Instagram was just, you know, brand new. Or was it even out a decade ago? I forget. But, you know, the point is that we, people were very anonymous. And there was a stigma. And you quietly were sober. You we were not loud and proud. You were not going onto, you know, a page and saying, hey, this isn't cool. This ad is not cool. You're targeting people in a predatory way when women are already tired, hormonal, you know, we're already going through all these things. And then you're telling us just to drink, to solve it. Not cool. So that's one campaign that I've seen, um, that we really made a difference in, um, in getting it to just to change. Like, Hey, don't target me like that. You know what I'm saying? Like I am a mom, I'm already doing the, the best I can. 
the last thing I need is encouragement to do something that could be detrimental. And I, I am not a person who is anti-alcohol. I have some girlfriends who are, I call them neo-abolitionists and they're, they're <laughs> young and very on fire. You know, no one should drink. I don't believe that. I think, you know, I say Jesus turned water into wine, y'all. So there must be something celebratory about it. If, you know, if, whether it's the story is true or not, at the end of the day, when someone is, you know, a person who can be responsible and have that glass for a woman or for a man, have the two drinks and leave it at that, and it's not every day, then sure, you can enjoy it. But I want people to just be mindful and just really to see how we're targeted, especially as women and as mothers, so that you can make the best decision for yourself to not feel pressured that that is the solution. So if if I can share that message to, you know, be mindful, don't be, feel pressured that that's the only way you can cope with parenthood, then I feel like my job is done. And of course, I do want to be accessible for people who do feel like maybe they, you know, oh, wow, actually, I need to, my relationship with alcohol is really not good. I want to reach out to Kiel and talk about, you know, maybe recovery, maybe sobriety for that reason. Of course, I'm open to that as well. But for the general population, the message is just be mindful and know what responsible drinking actually looks like because I'll, the booze companies are not, they would not make money if you were a responsible drinker. They need you to go through a bottle of wine a night or every two days. If you get a bottle of wine and you drink it responsibly, you're going to have that bottle of wine for a week or so, and it's going to go bad. And then, oh, you know, they're not going to make any money. So it, there's so many different ways of looking at it. Yeah. And the campaigns always, you know, they always say at the end of the commercials, drink responsibly, right? It's like a, it's like a thing that's yes. always said, but they're not, no one's talking about what it means to drink responsibly. If they're promoting to you a bottle of hard liquor, if you're, if they're promoting to you something yes. that's 40% alcohol and they're saying, drink this and have fun with your friends and, and look, you're socializing and look at all the great things you're doing because you're having this cocktail, but at the end, drink responsibly. What does that mean? Right. If we're, if we're drinking to be able to enjoy ourselves, if we require alcohol to be able to enjoy ourselves, that's not responsible. Right. That means, like you said, there's a mindful component that's missing. We're missing something. Yeah. And, and the mindfulness aspect is, is what we're missing. And of course that's, I mean, if, if alcohol companies marketed with a mindful component to it, <laughs> of course they wouldn't make as much money. So of course they're not doing it. But the issue is that like marketing with so many companies, right? We're so used to seeing it and we're so used to how it plays into the culture and how the culture plays into it that we're not looking at the reality of it, which is that like, we're not, we're not getting reflective and introspective and asking ourselves, why do we need this thing to enjoy our time? What does it mean to be mindful? Can I be mindful and enjoy my time with this glass of whatever? Is that possible? Yes or no. If it's not, what's the alternative plan? If it is possible, great. How do you stay responsible? What happens when you go too far? Mm -hmm. You know, there are so many, so many intricacies to it that are, I, I still feel like are not a common piece of the conversation yet. We're not, we're not like so many things. We're not talking about finding balance. To me, it's the same idea as diet culture, right? It's right. like either you eat Burger King every day or you drink celery juice every day. And it's like, well, what about the in-between, which yeah. is where most people actually live? Right. Like, let's be real about boundaries and about being mindful within our own confines yeah. and not just doing what becomes the societal norm. I have to tell you, you know, 
when it comes to healthy eating, I still have friends that give me shit if we go to a restaurant and I order a kale salad. And I don't always do that. Sometimes I have pasta. Sometimes I have, you know, I don't know. I'm not a steak lover, but sometimes I'll have like, you know, a, a lot of meat right. in a sitting. I don't do it often because it's hard for my body, specifically my body to digest meat, to process meat. But sometimes I do yeah. and sometimes I don't. And sometimes I have pasta and sometimes I have a salad. And it depends. For me, it's more about where I am in my cycle, how I'm feeling that day, how hydrated am I, how energy depleted am I, you know, that and and. I'm not saying everyone needs to think about every meal in that way, but it's the same with drinking. Yeah. Like what has, what are all of the elements that go into me having that glass of wine? Am I under rested? Did I only get four hours of sleep last night? Maybe having a glass of wine is not the thing I need right yes. now. Maybe what I need instead is like a nap. And I, I've, <laughs> yeah, a nap. Or I've heard the argument too. Like I get it because from a fitness perspective, and I'm sure you can relate to this as well. To me, it's always like, if I feel like I need this glass of wine to get through my day, like I need, like I need to go through my entire day going, oh my God, but bedtime 7.30, so eight o'clock, I get a glass of wine. If that's my motivation, what could be a different motivation instead, right? Like, could I take a yoga class and that could get me through my day? And I understand the argument that not everyone has 60 minutes to take a yoga class and that's fine. But what does it take you to drink that glass of wine? 10, 20, 30 minutes. Right. What if you just did a quick meditation instead? What if you just did, you know, there are so many alternatives to alcohol and, yeah. and I'm, I'm not saying everyone has to be sober, right? I'm not sober, but I also drink like maybe two to three times a month. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not a consistent drinker and I used to be, Ooh, I used to be when I lived in New York, it was terrible. I drank every night. If there was a night that I didn't drink, it was like, why am I not drinking? <laughs> and, and that's the culture as well. Like friends would be like, why are you having a club soda? And there was always, um, not necessarily judgment, but there was like people needed to know what was wrong. It was always the assumption that something was wrong if you weren't having a drink. And it took me a really long time to work myself out of that culture and that mentality because it was what I had been around. And because I come from alcoholics in my family and because the father of my first daughter is an alcoholic. And I, I remember it wasn't really a light bulb moment for me, but it was just little things over time to where I was like, what am I teaching my daughter? What am I showing her is normal? And is that normal? And is that healthy? Or do I need to be giving her a different example than what she's surrounded by. Yeah. If I have, if her dad is drinking, you know, a bottle of liquor in a night. And if, if people in my family are having, you know, I don't know, four scotch and sodas before dinner, and that's what she's constantly exposed to, then to her, that's going to be normal. And do I want that for her? Or do I want her to, to have balance in what she's around and to see that, I only have a glass of wine, you know, once every two weeks. And for her to see that there are different ways of doing it so that she doesn't just continue with that societal cycle where it's like, okay, well, I'm around all this all the time. So it must just be normal. We just drink with dinner. We just drink when we get home from work. We just, right. We just drink because that's just a thing we do in our day. So for me, it was, I mean, it was definitely a number of things, but it was a lot more about like seeing the toxicity of those alcoholic relationships and knowing that I wanted her to be able to witness firsthand that there are different ways to live and different ways to experience alcohol. But I'm curious for you, was it 
as simple as a light bulb moment? Were there indicators? Did you push back at first? Like when you realized that you needed to live a different kind of life, did you yeah. rebel against that? Like, what was it like for you? Uh, the first time around. So I remember uh, 2008 was my first, not so much of a light bulb, but kind of a like, what the hell are you doing? Was waking up and having missed a whole entire morning of personal training sessions at a, a job that I had just started because I passed out and just was blacked out through the morning. So I woke up probably eight o'clock, nine o'clock to, you know, miss phone calls, mix, miss text messages, all of these things. Hey, we're, at, we're here. We're waiting for you. Are you coming? And that was just the worst feeling ever. I, I never forget that. It's a part of my story. I share if I'm talking to a group of people, recovery, sobriety, whatever. That was the first moment where I, I, I realized that I was impacting someone else's life by my drinking, meaning like I'm a personal trainer, oddly enough, how ironic, and I'm blacked out drunk because, I, you know, that was what I was doing in secret and I couldn't show up for these people who were trying to better their lives. So I didn't quit, of course. I started the rules, you know, okay, well, that'll never happen again because I will only drink on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. So I have that figured out. So that solves that problem. And, you know, you start making all these different rules. Um, but I continued bartending and personal training and doing nutrition coaching and teaching. I had these like two, like these dual lives. I was like a health coach and fitness trainer, nutrition coach during the day. And then I was a bartender and wild party animal at night. And I just yeah. did that for as long <laughs> as I could. And in 2015, um, I woke up with, a, you know, one of my girlfriends, we were going to this women's wellness convention. Why we were going to the convention was because there was free wine. I literally was like, oh, let's go to this. It says free wine. Let's do it. We had a road drink, the, you know, 10 a.m. We're drinking mimosas on the road. Get there, drink the whole time we're there. Go to another party, drink some more. Go to a birth friend's birthday party, drink all night long. Then I was like, oh, perfect. I'm going to drive home. So drove my car off the side of a freeway uh, with 0.15 BAC level. Luckily, was just me and my car in a ditch, didn't hurt anyone else. And again, didn't think that that, that still wasn't enough to stay sober. Um, you have to- With nearly double the yeah, legal nearly limit. Nearly double the legal limit. So of course, you know, thousands of dollars it costs. Thousands yeah. of dollars for lawyers, for the classes. You're supposed to go to AA as a part of, you know, the, the case and all of these things. And I went to one meeting but was still not, and even though I knew, I was like, dang, like, oh, I got to quit drinking. Like, this is freaking crazy. Like, I, this is it. It happened. It finally happened. And I had moments in, you know, between 08 and 2015, many moments of just like, what? Okay, no, not again, not again, but just always had an excuse. I was able to make up a reason. Well, you know, I, I'll just drink wine and beer. I just won't drink tequila anymore. Obviously, it's just the tequila. It's not me. It's the tequila. I'm like, or whatever. I just won't go with them. Right. Because there's also like this, there's almost like the societal like comedy around tequila, right? Like, oh, tequila makes yes. people crazy. Yeah. <laughs> so, but it's but it's the alcohol's fault. It's not the person's yeah, fault, right? Blame that, not your behaviors. And so um went to one meeting and was just like, oh, this isn't for me. I, I can just do this on my own. I lasted eight months. And that was, it was, you said something funny. Cause like, you know, if you go out with friends and you're like, oh, I'm vegan now. They're like, oh, that's, oh, that's great. You're vegan. Awesome. I quit smoking cigarettes. Oh, that's so good, girl. You quit smoking cigarettes. Awesome. Oh, I broke up with my toxic boyfriend. Good for you. That's great. I quit drinking. <gasps> What's wrong with you? 
what? Yeah. Oh, what's wrong? Yeah. It's like, wait a second. I'm eating kale and I'm single. That's fine. But I can't stop drinking. So I had girlfriends that were, you know, like that. Oh, Keola, it's your birthday. You can have just one. And I'm like, you don't remember? Yes. I literally drove off the side of the freeway. I can't have just one. I cannot. And because of not having the the tools, the community, the support for staying sober, I went back in gradually, little by little. So eight months I lasted without drinking, uh, you know, just, but didn't cut myself off from everybody and, and the access to it. And so just slowly but surely found my way drinking again. And um, in that time still, okay, so I had a master's degree. I was teaching at a university. I was opening a fitness studio. So no one in my life was really saying like, oh, you should, you know, cut back even after the DUI, you know, and when they saw me start drinking again, people figured, okay, she fit, you know, she learned her lesson. She knows what her parameters are. So she's probably okay. And I was, you know, on the outside, I guess. But then I just was like, I'm sick of this. I was just over the dual lifestyle. I was over the fact that I was keeping this like secret that I had this secret life from my clients and that I was just being a liar to me. I was just being a liar. Yeah. Take it. You know, everybody eat healthy, drink your water. Say, I'll see you tomorrow at 5 a.m. Meanwhile, I'm literally up till two drinking and just barely making it to teach the class. I just felt like the fakest phony person. And so for the next three years, I was just struggling that way. Uh, and I just said, I'm, I'm over it. I'm just over it. So it was definitely challenging. But when I decided this time, so in 2019, January, this time I would say, and I tell people this and I don't, not to be, I just feel very lucky that I didn't get to the point of addiction to alcohol. For me, I think there's a difference between alcohol abuse and alcohol addiction Mm. because I was just able to say, no, I'm good. I'm walking into this AA meeting and I got this. Also part of it is I'm a very, very mentally strong person. So when I do make a decision, I just, I stick to the decision. And this time I had a community. I was very open about it. You know, I was just, I talked about it on Instagram instantly. And it's actually someone DM'd me and they're like, oh, excuse me. I just want to let you know, like it, you're not supposed to post your AA chip. Like, I don't know you, but I've been following you and I'm sober. So you're not supposed to do that. And I was like, delete. Sorry, girl. But the reason <sighs> I'm posting this is because I only went to AA willingly because one of my friends from high school who was the college or was the basketball star college scholarship, you know, he was homecoming king. He posted a chip maybe two or three years before. And that was just in my mind. I was like, if he can do it and he like, he was the king of, you know, the high desert. Like, this is crazy where I grew up. And so I was just inspired by that. So I was like, I am not about to be quiet about this. I'm going to be as loud as I can. And hopefully it helps someone else. So my heart goes out to people who, who struggle when it comes to staying sober. Cause I would say even the first time, the first eight months, I didn't struggle. It was just a decision I made, but it was once I didn't have any support or I felt like I didn't have any tools. I didn't really know what I was doing. That's when I kind of fell back into it. This time I, it's just, this is what it is. You know, there's no going back for me. I, it just doesn't have a place in my life anymore. And I think that's why I'm so passionate to, for people to understand that like, it's okay if you didn't have a crazy rock bottom experience, like, so my rock bottom people are like, but you owned a gym and you had a car and you had college degrees. Like that's your bottom. Hey, for me, that was the bottom, how I felt. It was the way I felt inside, you know? So it it can be hard. 
But when you have community and when you have tools, when you have resources, when you understand why you're doing it, it makes it a lot easier. Uh, so this, you know, there's no going back for me, but I know for a lot of people, it's not the same, um, same story, same experience. So, well, I think that the, that what's so important too about your rock bottom or having the conversation about anyone's rock bottom is, is that like hitting rock bottom doesn't have to mean that every single aspect of your life has failed, right? Like that's usually not what happens for most people. Most people's rock bottom doesn't mean they literally lose everything, but most people's rock bottom means there was a significant negative impact on a part of your life that, that essentially broke you in a way. Right. And so like, you didn't have to lose your job and lose your relationship and lose your home and lose your everything. You didn't have to become homeless in order for it to be your rock bottom. Right. Like you, right. It was still the fact that there was a very strong outside influence on you that had significant negative impact. And that's, the fact that that's your rock bottom is means that that's your rock bottom, right? And mine probably mm. looks very different than yours. And that's also okay. We don't have to have reflective rock bottoms in order to be able to say, <laughs> oh, sure, now your experience makes sense to me because I had that experience too, right? Like we all live yeah. different lives. But yep. you said something, you said a couple of things. I want to, I'm trying to remember, I want to make sure I don't forget, but I would love to hear, I would love to hear you say a little bit more about the difference between alcohol abuse and alcohol addiction. Cause you mentioned that and it, it like, yeah. you know, perked up a little, a little antenna yeah. in my head. Yeah, definitely. And so there are going to be different opinions on this. If you're talking about what we call an old timer, <laughs> an old timer is like someone who's been going to AA 35, 20 years sober, you know, it's an, usually an over 50 year old person. We call them old timers. So in in their mind and in the, you know, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, they will say like alcoholism, that's it. It's just, you're an alcoholic. Like if you have trouble, trouble, uh, you're getting into trouble, you are having challenges and issues and problems in your life with alcohol and you're powerless over alcohol, you're an alcoholic. That's the, the, the one term. Now, um, the DSM, I forget what number it is, but the, a, a psychologist or sorry, psychiatrist the label for it or the diagnosis is alcohol use disorder. So there's that continuum, right? Alcoholic is like the old school version. The now uh, politically correct diagnosis is alcohol use disorder or AUD, they call it. And they also have one for substance use, which is SUD, substance use disorder. So for me, uh, drinking alcoholically or abusing alcohol versus being addicted to it means that I wasn't waking up like I got to have my drink right now or I won't be able to function. I didn't for me I could go days without drinking. I could go weeks without drinking, but when I did drink, I was going ham, I was going balls to the wall. We're drinking bottles of wine, we're not drinking a glass of wine. I just couldn't stop once I started. And I was using it in an abusive way. I was using alcohol as a coping mechanism, not as a glass of wine with dinner after a beautiful day where I'm not stressed out. I was using it. I was stressed out. I was tired. I was exhausted. I was anxious. And I was drinking to, in my mind, this is going to help solve that problem. So that's for me, abusing alcohol versus being addicted to the substance where you can't function meaning that your body, if you don't have alcohol for, you know, a period of time, you have the shakes, you you know, you have real health issues that you would have to go into a detox facility so that your body could get stable because you don't have alcohol. 
So I'm grateful that I, you know, I didn't get to that point where my body physically needed alcohol, which would be addiction for me. Um, but I was definitely a person who was abusing alcohol. And so while people don't, some people don't like the term alcoholic anymore. When I was first going into 12 step meetings and doing that program, I followed the rules. If you wanted to speak, you had to label yourself as an alcoholic. I had friends who were like, Yola, that's like, that's a crazy, like, why are you saying that you're not an alcoholic? And I'm like, listen, did you, do you have a DUI? Are you in a toxic relationship? Have you, you know, woke up and wondered where you were? Did you lose your keys? Have you lost your car? Does your family, you know, are you arguing with everyone all the time? Do you want me to like the list? Do you have, so you can't tell me, I think I'm the best person to, to judge what my position is. And also it was, I would tell people like, it's more of a testament that I'm abusing alcohol because you don't even know that I am. That's how I know I'm doing it so, so well, because you have no idea. Right. Cause you're covering it up. So yeah, I'm covering it up. I'm like, yeah, oh, cool. Everybody fitness. Yeah. And making videos and doing challenges. And everybody knew me as, you know, Keela, the trainer, Keela, the nutrition coach, Keela, the the goal setter and very encouraging. I will tell anybody that they can do anything. I'm here. I'm your number one cheerleader, but I was not my number one cheerleader. And so for the, the difference is, you know, the need, the like physical need in order to get through the day versus using it as a tool, as a coping tool and abusing it. So if the, if the dose is supposed to be a tablespoon and you're taking four tablespoons, you're abusing that medication substance. We do it with food all the time. Yep. We, uh, yep. you know, people abuse food. That's the, the, the world's, maybe not the world, definitely the U S our challenge with food is we abuse it. Yeah. You know, you, there's, what other country do you go to a drive through and they say, do you want a double size, triple size? What do you yeah, want to do? Quadruple size, size it? <laughs> yeah. You want a regular burger or you want a triple stack burger? Like what? Triple stack burger doesn't even for for who, who the percentage of people that would actually need a triple stack burger, meaning based on their body type, their size, their goals is very small. Very few people need that triple stack. And the fact that it's offered, it's, we abuse substance. We abuse TV. We binge TV, binge watching TV. And that, all of these things good. are accepted, right? Societally accepted. They're all accepted. Yeah. yeah. It's crazy. So yeah, so for me, I do, I see a a difference. And of course the terms, um, you know, when it comes to like the medical field, when it comes to psychology, treatment centers, recovery world, they no longer use alcoholic or alcoholism and it's now alcohol use disorder. So interesting. that's kind of like the, yeah, the background on it. You know, it's funny you were saying the, the things that people didn't think were a big deal, like losing your keys, losing your car, all that stuff. But I think back to the days that I was bartending and it's, and it is just a normal part of your day to day, right? Like you get there, you get there at four o'clock to open the bar for the night. And like, you know, you have in the, in the cash drawer, (laughs) in the safe, you have a collection of credit cards, keys, keys, purses, all the things, right? And it's like, how many wallets got left behind yesterday? How many, you know, what's the most interesting piece of jewelry that got left behind? I remember when I was working at the boathouse in Central Park, a woman left her six carat diamond ring in the bathroom because she was 
too drunk and just couldn't keep track of herself. I don't know if she took it off to wash her hands after she went to the bathroom or what. I don't know what happened. I just remember it was sitting on the soap dish underneath the mirror. And she was literally laying on the floor outside on the patio. It was in the summer and it was, you know, beautiful weather. And what do you do in beautiful weather in New York? You go to the boathouse <laughs> and you sit on the patio and you drink your face off. And she was literally laying on the ground, passed out. And her friends were completely ignoring her. And they were like laughing and drunk and having a great time. And I remember finding that ring and being like, holy shit, what do I do with this? And mm-hmm. I remember asking my boss and he was like, put it back. We, we are liable. If we hold on to that ring for her, we are liable. Put it back where you found it and don't tell anyone. And I was like, no, like this is, yeah, this is significant. This is like an heirloom. This is like part of someone's estate. This is a six mm. carat diamond. And, but I also didn't feel good giving it to her because she was passed out drunk on the ground. So right. I don't remember what ended up happening. I think she ended up at some point coming too because I approached her the next time she went to the bathroom and I was like, just so you know, there was a ring that was left behind. And she was like, oh my God, she described it to me. I gave it to her. But it was like everyone around me was like, just pretend like it didn't happen. Just ignore it. And I feel like that's kind of how in, in the industry, especially as a bartender, that's kind of how we are, we're like, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Desensitized, right? It's like, okay, everyone got wasted. Everyone left something behind. Just put it in the safe and deal with it later. Or if it's valuable enough, just pretend like you never saw it. And if someone else steals it, at least we're not held liable for it. Yeah. And, and the fact that that is just how we operate, like operating businesses function that way. Like, okay, check the safe. What's it? 13 different people's things were left behind. Okay. So 13 people last night got so drunk. They couldn't manage themselves. Got it. Cool. Mm. And, but we perpetuate that cycle, right? We don't cut people off. We always ask if they want one more. Oh yeah. You don't cut people. I mean, it's just kind of, again, if bars would not be open, if bartenders actually served what is considered responsible, we're, you know, you're supposed to be a judge. You kind of see, okay, they're falling over or they're causing a problem, yes, we're going to cut you off. But if you're kind of, if you're falling into your own corner, all right, that's fine. You know, you're not bothering anyone. You're passing on the ground. It's fine. People are walking over you. We just, and we accept it with, with everything with, um, you know, I, I overheard a conversation where someone was talking about their girlfriend who drinks a bottle of wine a night. And it's just, no one wants to say anything because they get up and go to work still. And they, but they see that, it's creating challenges for the person, but it's not immediate enough for it to matter. Right. You know, it's, it doesn't, it's not, okay, well, yeah, she did throw up, but uh, whatever. She got up and went home. So it's fine. Like, it's like, our, come on, like, hello, but we we're not taught or it's, it's glazed over what responsible is. Like you said, the commercial in tiny, tiny print says at the very bottom, Enjoy your drink responsibly. Really quick at the end of the commercial, and then it's on to the next thing. But there's Kim Crawford is one that's uh she it's so I've I have a I do have a a challenge, a struggle with wine and workouts being paired together. That bothers me. Yeah. Um and Kim Crawford, <laughs> her commercials are just they show this woman walking through like the mall or something weird like that, and she's got the wine and like the wind is blowing in her hair, and her girlfriend's all somehow come out of nowhere and they all have their bottles of wine and they're like walking through and it's just like oh if you drink this wine like you're gonna be so cool and so amazing but they like each woman has her own bottle of wine like y'all that is not what it is we just aren't really taught most people couldn't tell me 
what uh, a healthy serving or, you know, how much you're supposed to have. And then most people don't understand. There's actually a woman uh, on Instagram. Her name is Kathy and her Instagram is The Natural Wine School. She's a researcher and an educator on responsible drinking. And when she broke it down to what responsible drinking actually looks like, not just the serving sides, but almost like the checklist to ask yourself. And this would go back to like the mindfulness piece of, I don't, with, for lack of a better word than deserve is a question. Do I deserve this drink today? So you, you kind of mentioned it. Like, did I have a long, stressful day? Yes. No, you don't need to drink. Have I eaten healthfully and nutritious meals all day? No, you don't need to drink. Have I exercised today? No, you don't need to drink. You go all these things. Now, if you say yes to everything, I've meditated, I've had some exercise, I've eaten nutritious meals today, I'm hydrated, and I've had a good day. I've actually had a great day. So you know what? I'm going to have a glass of wine. Yes, check. Because you're in this, and I've slept. That's the other thing. She says it's huge. If you haven't done those things, then until you do eat the nutritious meal, get in the 30-minute walk, do a 10-minute meditation, and get yourself to a point where you feel like, okay, this day was shit, but now this day is good because I've eaten, I've exercised, I took a nap, I've, I'm hydrated, so now I will have that glass of wine. And you might be like, you know what? I actually don't even need it. Like you said, I did the 10-minute yoga, I went for the walk, I read, I did whatever the thing was, and, and that's where we need to become mindful. We need to understand that responsible drinking is a part of a person's day who has already done these other responsibilities for self-care, for self-preservation, whatever you want to call it, before going to the drink. And most people are not drinking for like that. They are drinking because they're tired, because they haven't slept well, and they don't realize that the alcohol is just making all of those things worse or less likely to happen. You're less likely to get up and go for, you know, exercise or workout after you've had two glasses of wine and you're tired and you're hungry. Like you're just going to pat, you know, it's, it just doesn't work that way. It's not an, it, alcohol does not inspire you. It actually depresses the system. And then when it comes to digestion and breaking it down, the other, the, the new thing is seltzer. Everybody's got hard seltzer, hard kombucha, hard. It's Ugh, like, I know. It's so tricky. It's it's the marketing is like, okay, we see millennials are starting to get into this healthier lifestyle. Millennials are, you know, really big on their health and want to take care and baby boomers too. We want to take care of their their health and their wellness. So what can we do to still get them to drink? Oh, we'll put it as hard kombucha. Perfect. Because the people are like, oh, I'm gonna get my probiotics and da, da, da. no, you're actually not, because before your body can even think about digesting and using the probiotics, it has to digest the alcohol first. So everything else gets put on hold. So it's like, hello, like, okay, it's just the seltzer thing. And, and it's tricky. So for the other world, for the people, you know, for someone like myself who I, I can't drink, it just doesn't, it's just not a part of my life. I don't, I'm not a responsible drinker. I am proud to say that. I don't know about having one drink. I'm going to have seven margaritas and a couple shots and that's how I roll. So I'm going to just not do it. But for that person, if I see, oh, seltzer, cool. And I'm not looking at it closely enough, you know what I'm saying? Like, oh, that's, it's cool. I'll try that. You don't realize like, oh shit, this has alcohol in it. Oh, yeah. I thought it was kombucha. Yeah. You know, so it's, it's very tricky, but we, we have to be, my, my message will always be, be mindful. Just know that you, one, you don't have to drink if you don't want to, and you don't have to explain it to anyone. If you don't want to, you, you really could just say, no, that's a full sentence. And then also know if you're going to drink, 
that what we are being sold as responsible is not responsible. What's responsible is one for women, two for men, not seven days in a row. If you go seven days in a row, you're now a heavy drinker. For a woman, if you go past two drinks, you're now drinking heavily. If a man goes past three drinks, you're now drinking heavily. So there's all these, the the, the line between responsible, moderate, and heavy drinking is just like a little tiny pencil thin line. It's literally a drink will put you over to be considered drinking heavily. So, you know, we just got to know. Just got to know the truth. Right. Well, and back up, going back to what you were saying before about like people thinking they need it, like, oh, I just need a drink to help me relax to get to sleep or, oh, I need a drink after dinner to help my digestion or whatever. It's like on a scientific level, we know that alcohol interferes with our REM cycles. We know that alcohol mm-hmm. does not allow us to complete full sleep cycles, which means it do- does not allow our body to regenerate in a way that allows us to be healthy for the next day. Right. And it's the same with it's the same with digestion. And for women, especially, we know that alcohol interferes with our hormones. And so yeah. if we're, if we are already not in homeostasis with our hormones, which is most of us because of the way that we live in this modern world where everything is go, go, go. And our estrogen levels are super high and our, and our, um, adrenaline levels are higher than they should be. Alcohol is only magnifying that for us, not fixing it, but making it worse. And so that's the reason that or not the reason, but like, that's the, that's one of the challenges that we're facing is like, it's all about what's marketed to us. And we have to be able to look at what we're being pitched by people that want our money and want our services and want us to consume. And then we have to look at the actual science and the actual data, which is not sexy, right? Like you're not going to see, we're not going to see a science commercial that's got Jennifer Aniston pitching to us why we should (laughs) drink, right? Like we know, we, we know how those, how the ad campaigns work, right? Like we see a perfume ad that has Jennifer Aniston or a Fiji water ad that has Jennifer Aniston. I don't know why she's in my head right now, but you know, it's like, we see that and we're like, Oh, if I drink Fiji water, I'm going to be one step closer to being like Jennifer Aniston. Right. Or what, whoever the celebrity is, whoever that desirable person is, right? Like the Kendall Jenner ads with Pepsi, right? It's like, yes. oh, if I drink Pepsi, I'm going to be one step closer to being Kendall Jenner. Yeah. No, no, you're not. And you're the crazy just, thing is so many stars have substance use issues. So many. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but they, yeah. You know. It's crazy. Yeah, it's wild. It's wild. And I think, you know, it's really hard to be able to suss through all of the marketing stuff that's pitched at you because it comes from everywhere. And because it has become so deeply ingrained in our society, we don't even realize that that it's rooted in marketing. It's just become a part of our culture. It's like, remember, remember Joe Camel? Yeah. Back when we were still back when cigarette ads could still do the same thing that alcohol ads are doing, which is like, look at how cool you are if you smoke cigarettes. And Joe Camel was like the ultimate, like, oh, you gotta be like Joe Camel. Or James Dean, you know, like you had this, we had this idea that was being pitched to us that it was like the ultra coolest. And like if you smoke camels or if you smoke whatever the the brand is then you're going to be like the ultimate bad boy, Sexy the ultimate lady, yeah. bad if you're girl, Virginia the ultimate, Slims, if you yeah, yeah, exactly. you'll be, you'll be cool. Yes. You'll be skinnier. I mean, <laughs> yeah. we, people didn't know though. I, I have a friend who's in his fifties. His mom smoked during pregnancy because she didn't know. Like it literally was, they would say there's an right. ad that someone showed me an, an old ad that was like, um, the benefit of smoking cigarettes during pregnancy is low birth weight. They didn't realize that the low birth weight was not a positive thing. It wasn't a good thing. You, the kids are being born with lung issues and right, and leads to health yeah, challenges for the rest of your life for those for the children rest of your lives. And we right. Were, were right, but if you have a baby with low birth weight, then it's not as traumatizing on your vagina. Yeah, exactly. 
That is what, isn't that crazy? And so we're, we just didn't, people didn't know how bad cigarettes were. And there, there's a research, um, there's some research out that compares alcohol to cigarettes and it's, it says, and this is not a one for one, obviously, but one bottle of wine is equivalent to 10 cigarettes when it comes down to the risk for cancer. And even though alcohol itself is not a carcinogen, it's, it's comparing how alcohol can affect your body similar to the way cigarettes can for these couple different types of cancer. And so when you, you know, when we look down on cigarette smokers, like, oh, cigarettes are so stinky and they're so gross and like smoking cigarettes is so bad and so disgusting, but wine, oh no, wine's perfectly fine. Well, if you understood that, that, that glass of wine can be putting you at risk, like as if you were smoking two cigarettes. So I'm just like, you know what? Let people choose, choose your poison, but at least know the truth about it. Again, I am not a, you know, I'm not a neo-abolitionist. I think that alcohol has a place for certain people in certain places and it's fine. It can be great. And, you know, to celebrate or whatever it can be. My, my fiance is Jewish. So on Passover, there's wine on Hanukkah, there's wine, but it's like 7%. This is sacramental. You know what I'm saying? You could, kids could drink it. It's so uh, minimal. Right. So yeah, there's celebration for, you know, for certain things, but people just don't understand the long-term effects and what could actually be happening if you are abusing the substance. And the other thing that people don't understand is how likely it is that you could fall into abuse or addiction with alcohol because it's so, so addictive. It's extremely addictive and it's extremely accessible and we're sold it every which where. And I think that is, I can understand and support the the goal for these like I call them neo abolitionist kind of people that they would I can understand wanting to take down some of the ads so that you cannot just advertise alcohol in every magazine and commercial the way cigarettes you don't see uh, cigarette ads we have this whole truth marketing campaign I could support that for getting the word out but I I'm saying neo abolitionist prohibition that's the word I meant to be saying this whole time neo prohibitionist to get the word out that alcohol could be so dangerous but um I, I'm kind of I'm in the middle and because I know for myself it, it, you know it doesn't have a place in my life I still understand that for other people it could be you know could be used responsibly but for parents we already are tired we're already stressed out enough the the last thing you even want to start to tiptoe on the potential of the slippery slope is to start making alcohol the thing that you use when you could do so many other things like for women they say we're not really connecting when we get together and we're all wasted are we really even connecting or are we just getting wasted together like if right. i actually want to talk and get your support as a from mom to mom I, I'm not really connecting with you when, you know, we're spending the whole night drinking and then I don't remember what we even said and I'm waking up hungover and now I got to do this whole thing all over again. Now I'm going to be tired, stressed out. And what are the, what's it like? I might have, I'll be drinking again if I keep this cycle up. So we have to be aware. Right. And if alcohol is the thing that makes you enjoy someone else's company, that's a really strong indicator that you need to evaluate why you otherwise wouldn't enjoy that person's company in yes. the same way. Maybe it's because you're too tired and stressed out and you shouldn't be with other people right now. Maybe it's because you actually don't have a healthy relationship with that person. Maybe it's because you just need to take a nap. You know, like there could be so many factors, but the fact that we do have those environments where we're like, oh, I'm going to go hang out with this person. So we're going to drink so that we can enjoy one another's mm -hmm. company. Like, 
like you were saying, there are other, there are so many deeper underlying issues. Like, do you actually need time to yourself? Do you actually need to go get a massage? What do you actually need to allow yourself to enjoy a relationship with another person in your life? Chances are it's not alcohol. Alcohol is the tool or the coping mechanism. Mm -hmm. Kila, this has been such a great conversation. (laughs) Thank you so much for your time. I have one last question that I think probably is going to be a heavy hitter, but I'm going to ask it anyway. So yeah. You were saying the anonymity aspect is not something that you stand behind, which I appreciate 100% and am a huge supporter of because I feel like if we continue to keep our addictions and our struggles and our and our however you want to label it in secret and we don't share with other people that we're going through it, how do we normalize, right? How do we create an environment of supporting one another and moving forward? And I, the only experience that I have with Alcoholics Anonymous is when I was going to Al-Anon support groups, which were mm-hmm. recommended to me by the mother of the person that I was dating at the time that was an alcoholic and he was abusive and he was awful. And his mom was like, just go to Al-Anon and they'll help you get through it. And (laughs) yep. And so I went to one meeting and it literally was like everyone, all of these horrible, not horrible, all of these horribly abused in one way or another, physically, emotionally, whatever people who, who are connected to someone with an addiction and they're all sharing their sob stories and feeling awful. I just remember the energy in the room was just brought me down so much more. (laughs) And I was, and then I was expected to walk away from that experience and not talk about it. And I was like, first of all, what I'm experiencing in this relationship with this person who is not a kind person, not a good, not that he's not a good person, but he's struggling, right? He's, he's like really, really struggling. And I am on the receiving end of all of his struggles and that's not okay. And what needed to happen was I needed to walk away from that a lot earlier than I did, but I thought it was my, I thought I was obligated. I thought it was my responsibility to just take care of my own experience, which was that I was a victim of someone with an addiction. And so I went to this group and, and that was the extent of the support that I received and eventually I did walk away from that relationship. But now looking back, like, why, why aren't we normalizing out loud the conversation around the fact that addiction affects everyone and whether you are the person with the addiction or whether you are the loved one of that person, we're all dealing with demons, right? And we're all like taking on some really significant fallout from that addiction. And we need to talk about what healthy boundaries look like. We need to talk about not making excuses. We need to talk about being productive. We need to talk like we need to, in my opinion, flip the dialogue and flip the conversation around it to help people get better instead of just saying, okay, well, addicts are addicts and we just have to cope with it. So considering everything that I just said, I would love to know your thoughts on the anonymity aspect of it versus not being anonymous versus sharing out loud your experience. Not that everyone has to do the same thing, right? Everyone has to get through addiction however they get through it. But but I feel like we're starting to move in a direction where there's more than one way to talk about addiction and not everything is so anonymity focused. But what are your thoughts on the anonymous aspect versus not being anonymous? Yeah, I think that it is a, it's a generation change that's happening. So uh, when the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous was written, there was no internet, there were no emails, there was no Instagram, no social media. People were more private in general. Now that we have access to these things, we post pictures of our food, of our kids, of our everything else. So why would we not talk about this thing? So the re- the purpose behind the anonymity thing back then was really more so as this is how I understand it from my reading and my experience in meetings and things like that is it was a protection 
so that if I went to a meeting and I saw you and you were the lawyer or the doctor or the teacher or the neighborhood police officer or whatever it was, I was not going to out you if I saw you in public. I was, we have this secret understanding. All right, I see you here and obviously you see me here. So clearly neither one of us wants anybody to know that we're here. So let's just keep this on the low and go out about our business. And it's supposed to help protect your sobriety so that someone doesn't throw something out and you now are embarrassed or, you know, have something to hold against you. I totally get that. I totally respect that. And that's what still happens in traditional rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. But it's a new day. (laughs) So because we have millennials who are wanting to look at their relationship with alcohol and maybe they haven't had this life-changing, you know, situation happen, but they do, they realize like when I drink, I do this, this and that, and I just don't like it. They want to talk about it. And we, from a different perspective, when it comes to culturally, especially in communities of color, minority, whatever you want to call it, minority folks, black folks, you know, Latino folks, Latino American, whatever you want to call yourself. We don't talk about anything already, like therapy. There's no therapy. No, you go to church, you talk to God, you pray about it. You don't tell people your business. That kept my family in a struggle for so long that my whole entire family, my immediate family, were all loud and out and proud about my dad's recovery, about my recovery, about our family recovering from addiction. If my mom knew 30 years ago that she could have talked to someone besides a girlfriend here or there and in secret, our enti- my entire life would be different because she would have reached out and the same thing. When my dad was in rehab, it was, oh, go to this, this group. Al-Anon is, a, is great, but at the end of the day, it's also a group of codependent people because they're codependent to their partner because they're sticking by their partner's side who is struggling with this, this addiction. And they're only talking to other codependent people. Yes. Oh, that happened to me too. Yes. 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 And I feel like it's an enablist culture, right? It's like, we're going to allow yeah. you to keep for, from my experience. That person yeah, exactly. Who's abusing right. you or abusing the substance or, and so you, I think that the way that things are changing is it's not just only, are we no longer being anonymous? We, you know, there's groups called recovering out loud alcoholics not anonymous there's so many other groups now there's on on clubhouse we have a sobriety club where we talk about it and there are people who you know don't put their last name or whatever it is because they want to remain anonymous i would never out someone i will always respect someone if that's their choice to remain anonymous meaning that if they're in a meeting they only say their first name they don't ever say their last name and a lot of the rules when it comes to anonymity are so that alcoholics anonymous doesn't get brought into saying well, I went to, you know, I am Keola Reigns and I'm here representing AA, like for that reason. So I'm on this podcast talking to you, but I, I would never be on it saying like I'm representing AA. It's to keep the, the program separate from anything else. That one reason to keep people protected if they happen to be in the public eye or something like that. That's another reason. And the theory is that if we have this kind of secret place in this secret group, this anonymous group that will help us to stay sober. Um, we have this, this place where we can go and it's safe and no one's judging us here, but now we, it's a, it's a new world. Everything is out in the open. Everything is judged. Everything's out in the open. And again, for me, I would have never gone back that second time. I would not probably today be sober if my friend from high school 
hadn't posted his chip to say he had two years of sobriety. So for me, someone else being out and open actually changed my life. And for me now, me talking on Clubhouse, me talking on podcasts has had people reach out to me. So I also get to see the benefit of me talking about it. I I do lots of rooms on Clubhouse about sobriety and people hear the voice and they're like, oh, whatever you did, it sounds like, you know, you tell your story and it sounds like your life is much better now. I want whatever you have. I want to try that. I've gone on podcasts for um, specifically for sobriety or recovery and had ended up getting clients who wanted to come and do nutrition coaching with me because they want to get sober, but they also want to do this other healthy lifestyle thing. So it's beneficial in many ways. And just for me, I am an out loud person. I can't do anything in secret. I want everybody to know everything I'm doing. So it just made sense for me. And I think that, yeah, like you said, you it could create this by staying quiet and keeping like, oh, this is a secret. You know, we don't want to tell anybody. It doesn't help the person who's really struggling when no one knows, no one knows that they're struggling. You know what I'm saying? So we're breaking the stigma. We're changing the narrative of what substance use looks like, what it means. We are breaking away from people being ashamed that maybe they tried something one day and they didn't realize that their makeup, their body, their their life, uh, you know, their life path, their, their DNA was not made to be able to try whatever substance it was behavior. Um, because there's other things too. People are addicted to gambling, all kinds of stuff. Yeah. And we, we need to be able to say, Hey, you, you went down that path and that path is not for you. Come on over here. It's working for me. It's working for these millions of other people across the world. So don't be afraid. Don't be, you know, don't be shy. You don't have to be ashamed. And I just, I, that's one of the reasons that I will always have respect for my sponsor. I'll always have respect for AA. Always, always, always. It's the foundation for me. However, I have very much so branched out into other ways of staying on my path, whether it's with the reframe, thousand hours dry, sober black girls club, sobriety club on clubhouse. There's so many other ways that I, that I stay sober that I just can't imagine I can't imagine any other way than being out loud. So I'm very loud about it. I'm very out about it. I won't ever disrespect someone else's anonymity, but it's working for me right now. And I know there, you know, there might be an old timer, traditional old timer, we call him an AA, who's listening to this and would say, oh, you know, we'll see where she is in two years from now. We'll see where she is. And I will tell you, bless your heart, you know, my, (laughs) my higher power has this is what my path is that I know my higher power is encouraging me to be out loud and proud because it kept my family in such a negative place for so long because we never talked about my dad's addiction. We knew it was something that happened. We knew he went to rehab. We knew, but we he would come home from those things and then we would just pretend nothing happened and go on about our lives. Everyone around was bleeding, meaning we had all these scars and bruises, not physical, but we had emotional, these emotional yeah emotional scars, emotional bruises that we just, I I just like, Oh, it's fine. But that's why I ended up drinking. Right. That's why I ended up, you know, so long answer is I am out. (laughs) I'm out. I'm I'm out of the closet, the alcoholic closet, whatever you want to call it. I'm out in the open. I have no shame about it. I happily tell people about what sobriety has done for me. And I happily encourage people to just reevaluate their relationship with alcohol without having to hit rock bottom. Like, girl, I don't want you to have to drive off the car off the freeway. I want you to get ahead. of. T- I want you to not experience that. 
you know, so. Right. Especially when you think about how severe the consequences could have been. Yes. All things considered, you had the best possible outcome for that situation. You didn't hit another car. Yeah. You didn't have someone else in the car with you. You didn't end up harming yourself, yeah. right? Like you didn't flip the car. You didn't crash into a barrier. Like there are so many very easy alternate outcomes. And easy meaning like they could have just as easily happened as the thing that happened to you. But most of the other alternate outcomes are much more severe. Yep. So like you, I even hate to say this, because, but like you were lucky, all yeah. things considered. And it's it's amazing that, that you took that as an indicator to let that be your rock bottom instead of taking it as an indicator that you can keep pushing the boundaries and see what happens. Because the next thing that happened would have been worse. Yeah. No, definitely. I'm very lucky and grateful to be alive. And that's, I feel like I can't be quiet. <laughs> I can't be quiet and about it. <laughs> yeah. And I, for one, appreciate the, the living out loud idea because that's how we start to allow people to see that they're not alone. Right. I can share little tidbits here and there about my struggles with addiction and the people in relationships in my past that have had addiction issues. And there's not shame around that. We're all dealing with it. Everyone's dealing with it in one way or another. It's just that some of us are willing to talk about it. And some of us are okay with the stigmas that may be connected or, you know, the negative judgments that people may have about it, but that's all of that's on them. Right. Yeah. That, that old timer that says, we'll see where she is in two years that's not supportive yeah. <laughs> I mean yeah, no, but that's, that's the environment that they're accustomed to right it's like oh keep your keep your sobriety quiet so that when you fall off the wagon people can't judge you but it's like even if you do fall off the wagon first of all people need to see that that's okay mm -hmm. it's not great but it's okay that it happens and then people can circle their wagons people can rally around you to support you and say oh shit you had a low point here let me help you let me support you in getting back up yep. let me support you in taking the next the first step to moving forward and also just like that perfectionist mentality that we have about everything like you have to socially drink but you must be perfect about it don't be an addict and if you are an addict keep it under wraps so that it looks like you're being perfect about it you know like it's just so much of the way that we deal with anything negative is to keep it secret. Don't don't tarnish the family name. Yeah. Don't make us look bad to our friends. You know, it's all about that outside perception when the reality of the issue is that someone is hurting and needs help. And who gives a shit what anyone on the outside is thinking or perceiving about it? Help each other. Let's help each other. Let's let's. And that doesn't mean that everyone has to be loud and out and proud about their their traumas and their addictions and their experiences yeah. but that's why we're having this conversation today to help people who are struggling and feel like there's shame around it feel like they have to be quiet about it or feel like they can't even take the next step to work on becoming sober because there's stigma around that right or no one else is doing it or my friends are going to judge me and I don't have the example of literally anyone else being okay with their friends judging them so like when we can provide this this safe conversation to let other people know there are other ways, then we are providing that experience so that even if it only positively affects one person, that's still one more person than it was yesterday. And that person can then affect someone else. And we can create positive change, even if it's one person at a time. Amen. <laughs> this was awesome. This was so great. Keela, I so appreciate your perspective and your honesty and everything that you shared. And I will make sure that people know where they can find you. Is there anything else that you want to share as we wrap up the conversation? Um, just, you know, be mindful. <laughs> just know that you don't, 
you don't have to follow the crowd. I know that sounds like so silly and cliche, but you really don't have to follow the crowd. And if you even have the tiniest notion, tiniest little gut feeling that, you know what? I need to think about my drinking. I just want to encourage you to take the steps, whatever it means reaching out to someone, if it means following a thousand hours dry, if it means, you know, finding me on, on um, social media, whatever it means, just take that step and be mindful about it. And now there's so many other options for, for alcohol. So if you feel a little gut something, if you know, something's flashing in your, okay, I'm going to I highly encourage you just to take the steps to get to get the help, to get the resources, get the community that you need. Amazing. Thank you so much. 